You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrand. Coming up, we'll talk to a pair of Wisconsin finance experts about the challenges facing young adults when it comes to building credit, paying down debt, and ultimately saving for retirement. If you're dealing with those questions yourself right now, you can get in on it. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a story about connecting with nature. Quantee's winter's goal is to get people outside more. As Madison Public Library's naturalist-in-residence, she wants people to think about and appreciate nature. Christina Leffring went to Madison's Troy Gardens to bring us winter story. So beautiful. Mm -hmm. Always just take a silent moment, take a couple of deep breaths, just take it in. You can hear the insects singing their final songs, squirrels frantically preparing for winter, and migratory birds preparing for their long journey. And Quanti's Winters wants you to take it all in. I want you to see the beauty and the enchantment of like the trees and how they sound when the wind is blowing through them, the vibrant colors of the flowers, the smell of dirt, which is like my favorite smell on the planet. I wish I could bottle it up. Like I want you guys to like have that feeling, almost like like being a child again, like everything amazes you when you're a child. Nature has been a safe space for Winters since she was a young girl. Now she's the Madison Public Library's naturalist in residence. Her first event in this role was a meet and greet and tour at Troy Farms, where she was an apprentice in 2019. She says that apprenticeship deeply transformed her relationship with farming. My only uh, understanding of agriculture and black people was slavery. So I came here with the intention of dismantling that by getting my hands in the dirt and doing this work outside of that context. She had started this work when she learned that her grandfather had been Gullah Geechee, descendants of Africans who were enslaved and built a distinct culture in the coastal southeastern U.S. Knowing how to grow food was something that was used to sustain their families and their communities. And so with that perspective in mind, it really helped me to see that this is a gift. There's a lot of medicine out here. And I don't just mean as in food is medicine, but I mean on a spiritual level, being able to know how to grow your own food reminds you of the smallness of yourself and the bigness of nature. Winters has worn many hats over the years. She's a doula, an herbalist. She hosted a PBS Wisconsin show called Let's Grow Stuff. Plus, she's an artist and a writer. But instead of taking one hat off and putting another on, all of Winters' hats seem to overlap. There's an aspect of each that requires me to nurture a certain aspect of humanity and I think that's what links it all together. Um, when I'm creating art and when I'm writing I'm trying to like nurture the minds of the people who are engaging in what I'm creating. When it comes to my doula work I'm trying to nurture people's relationship with their bodies and when I'm working with the land I'm trying to nourish us not only physically by growing food but also nourishing that mental emotional spiritual aspect Maybe that drive to nurture is one reason she's so comfortable with children. When some of the toddlers keep trying to climb on picnic benches, she scoops them up and puts them in her lap. Can we sit together, Poo-Poo? I don't want you to get on the table. Children are like very much a part of what I do and what inspires me. Just seeing how they approach the world and how they navigate the world with 
that like freshness and innocence. For so many of us, our connection and knowledge of our natural world has been lost. Winter's journey as a naturalist is about reclaiming that connection and also the wonder we often leave behind in childhood. Sometimes the world just kind of goes gray, um, but we don't take a time to just like stop and be like, wow, what's around me is beautiful. And so I would hope to be able to offer that through like all the different things that we do together is for y'all to like walk away with that and to feel like a kid again when you're outside. Yeah, great question, thank you. <laughs> Christina Leffring brought us that story on Quantee's Winters of Madison. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. Find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Maureen McCollum. This is Central Time. Young adults are facing a particular set of economic circumstances that make it more difficult to achieve long-term financial security. While they work to build up their credit scores, start saving for retirement, they're also facing rising debt with student loans, high housing costs, and high borrowing costs. This age group ends up spending more of their disposable income on paying down debt, which limits their ability to build wealth, buy a home, prepare for retirement. Many of those same factors affect borrowers of all ages. So today we're getting some Advice from a pair of experts in the field, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about you or maybe your kids if you're at that early stage or if they're at that early stage of the career? Is there a lot of debt? Is it tough to find affordable housing? And what kind of advice do you need? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Cliff Robb is the Lorna Jorgensen-Went Professor in Money, Relationships, and Equality and the Consumer Science Department Chair at UW-Madison. Cliff, welcome to Central Time. No, oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. And Eric Kroll is a certified financial planner and owner of Hilltop Financial Advisors in Milwaukee. Eric, thanks for being here. I appreciate you having me as well. Thank you. Cliff, how would you characterize the current you know, economic outlook for young adults who are entering the workforce or just into the workforce these days? So it's it's very challenging for a lot of reasons, right? We've seen shifts in the marketplace that place greater responsibility on individual consumers in general. They're not only coming into a workplace that has seen relatively flat wage growth, but they're also in a marketplace where inflation is up. So overall cost of living is higher and they're getting hit with a little bit higher interest rates when it comes to borrowing for those kinds of needs like, um, again, education, housing, uh, you name it. And Eric, when you work on financial planning with younger clients, assuming that younger clients come in to seek financial planning at this stage, what are, are some of the main concerns you're hearing right now? Um, yes, and so yes, younger clients are certainly coming in and <laughs> have a lot of questions. Um, a lot of questions uh, tend to revolve around uh, lately, you know, how do we afford this or a house? Um, and then planning for a growing family. How how are we going to afford the cost of childcare? Or is one spouse going to stay home with the kids? How is that all going to work? Uh, there's a lot of as a as a young family. There's a lot of financial issues that uh, you have to deal with and navigate. And Eric, I imagine those are problems for any generation, but uh, some of the things you mentioned, uh, housing costs, 
uh, mortgage rates, things like that. Are are you seeing over time things being more difficult for that, say, young couple or young family? It seems to have certainly got more difficult in the past year to two years or so. I would say it was already very hard with uh, the housing market, very low inventories, rising intro, rising home prices. Um, and then uh, you throw on top of that rising interest, dramatically rising interest rates, and that really uh, boosts the, the cost of, of owning a home. Cliff, uh, a starting point here was an article uh, we saw in the New York Times about uh, younger people, Generation Z in particular, struggling a lot with debt from various sources, uh, student loan, medical debt, credit, you name it. What are you seeing, uh, Cliff, when it comes to uh, debt and young people and how it compares to previous generations? It's definitely a bigger challenge because they are, again, in general, coming to uh they're hitting this kind of like amount of debt at an earlier age than kind of previous generations. And again, a lot of that is due to um, choices they're making early on. And a lot of times those choices are difficult choices to make. So even if we think about uh, taking higher education, which is very expensive and putting it to the side because not everybody chooses to pursue higher education, there's a lot of other types of debts that people face, as you mentioned. So uh, credit card debt, um, debt related to automobile purchases, uh, all those other types of things are relevant for all of this generation due to the fact that just cost of living is up across the board and it is challenging. And Eric, when that client comes in and says, yeah, I want to start uh, buying a house, preparing for retirement, but, but here I am, I have this bundle of debt. I know everybody's different, but what do you recommend as starting points for clients to start to tackle that debt? It, the caveat is it always depends on on the person and the situation, of course. But um, it, I try and find a way to meet the client where they're at. Um, you know, where where do things stand? We get an inventory of what is going on, um, what can be done. Um, is there any extra uh, cash flow on hand? And does that need to be put to paying down credit card debt? Does it need to be put towards um, beefing up an emergency fund? Does it need to be put towards um, savings elsewhere? But when we start looking at things, you know, if you can only do um, X amount, start there, draw your line in, a, in the sand and say, okay, we're going to put $10, $20 a month if even even if it's that amount, we're going to put that amount towards debt or emergency savings. And then as we get extra income, we can increase that amount. But getting in the habit, starting with a habit of saving and paying down debt is where we typically first start. We're talking to Milwaukee-based certified financial planner Eric Kroll and UW-Madison consumer science professor Cliff Robb about how to navigate debt, credit scores, Get some retirement savings going, maybe, with high interest rates driving up the cost of loans. 
Uh, some recent reporting on the youngest generation entering the workforce, Generation Z, uh, already facing problems with debt that could make retirement planning difficult down the road. You can join in at 800-642-1234. How are current economic conditions affecting your financial situation, your decision-making? If you are that younger person just into the workforce or you have a kid who is, love to hear what you're experiencing Uh, Do you have questions about uh, some of the basics, what credit scores mean, for example? And uh, if you're not that younger generation, what do you wish you'd known about money and finances when you were, say, in your 20s? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk about financial challenges involving debt, borrowing costs, credit scores, and long-term savings, especially for the youngest generation in the workforce, uh, Generation Z. Our guests are UW-Madison consumer, consumer science professor Cliff Robb and certified financial planner Eric Kroll from Hilltop Financial Advisors in Milwaukee. You can join in if you need some advice or maybe you have advice, maybe something you wish you'd known 20 years ago. Join in at 800-642-1234. Have you found ways to tackle uh, debt and maybe to start saving for retirement yourself? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Cliff, people have been talking for years about trying to boost financial literacy in the the high school curriculum and elsewhere. What to you are some of the key elements of of what that uh, generation entering a workforce uh, needs to know when it comes to financial literacy? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of key points, but one of the foundational pieces that has kind of arisen in at least in the U.S. marketplace is that concept of the credit score. So that's at the heart of the article you were mentioning earlier. And the credit score has become an incredibly important piece of information around consumers and their financial freedom. So if you look back, you know, say, you know, 30, 40 years, the credit score kind of existed, but wasn't such a prominent feature. Whereas now a young individual coming out into the workforce, that credit score can have a huge impact on their employment. It can have an impact on their ability to borrow. And it's really hard to establish those from a young age, right? So one of the things we know about credit scores is a big factor in your score is the length of your credit history. So already younger people are at a slight disadvantage. And so there's a lot of work that needs to go into learning how easy, even small decisions early on can damage that credit score, such as having a late or missed payment on a card or a utility bill. So those are really important kind of foundational pieces from my perspective. Eric, is that something you work with clients on, a credit score management, making the kind of decisions and credit choices that will over time boost that credit score and I think give better terms in the future when we borrow stuff? Well, I, we don't have a specific drive to uh, manage the credit score, but that does get indirectly um, managed by way of our goals are help the client make really good financial decisions, clean up things, you know, pay down debt, boost emergency funds, things like that. All those things help to drive higher credit scores um, by doing that. 
And Eric, I was once in my 20s, and I got to say the thought of uh, retirement seemed like distant science fiction future to me at that point. How do you talk to younger people uh, to encourage them to think about starting to do retirement savings uh, early, even if it doesn't seem like it's in their time horizon? Sure. Yeah, that is a tough one because um, a lot of research shows that our present selves will discount our future selves um, or not really um, prioritize our future selves as much. We prioritize our present selves a lot more. So uh, sometimes it is getting the client to think about their future self and say, okay, you are in the distant future, you're age 65 or however old you want to be when, when you reach um, retirement goal. What are you thinking and feeling now that you're there? And try and get them to put themselves in that mind frame of um, being in the future. And that can hopefully help them uh, stop and think a little bit more and prioritize that savings. Um, the other piece that really helps is to uh, get on an automatic savings track so that if you're already putting in an automatic monthly amount to retirement you don't have to make that decision every month or every you know however often do i want to save for retirement yes or no you've already made that decision once you don't have to make that decision again let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234 fernando is with us in beloit fernando hi hi what did you want to bring up well I noticed that a lot of people, especially young people, believe in subscribing to things like viewing sites or like packages, that kind of thing. But I find like more often than not, it's a lot of things you don't end up wanting. So I don't subscribe to anything. It just saves a bunch of money. Fernando, thanks a lot for the call. And Cliff, uh, as a consumer science professor, it seems like consumer society is more and more built around subscribing to goods and services and maybe forgetting about them and paying for them uh, into eternity. How important is this as we uh, evaluate where our money is going? Yeah, I think that's a really good point that's raised here. And it it nicely ties back to kind of a point that Eric was making when Eric was kind of stressing this idea of establishing good habits. And in his context, we're talking about habits that are savings related and putting money away for retirement. This is kind of, again, what's happening here is marketers are very intelligently taking advantage of the known fact that if we can get you started on something in a subscription service, odds are you'll stay on board, especially if we make it kind of tricky to get off that subscription service. So yeah, there's definitely a, a piece there that is worth looking at. And a lot of times what we would recommend, and what I think a planner would often recommend, is that when we're sitting down to, to work with someone, it is laying everything on the table, right? That's part of the budgeting process, is understanding where every dollar is going. And sometimes once consumers really sit down and see what are all these subscriptions? What are all these services I've been paying for? And then you can start to check the box of like, oh, I haven't used this in months or I don't even like this anymore. And so it is definitely a critical area to analyze in consumer behavior. Fernando, thanks for that call. Eric, I wanted to ask about uh, student loan payments. Now, for those with student loan debt, there's been this on and off again, uh, you know, delays in needing to repay or is it going to be canceled? Isn't it? Well, now, uh, people are having to pay. What are you suggesting people watch for as this new recurring uh, payment uh, starts to come due again? Yeah, there's a lot to pay attention to. 
um, mainly because everyone is getting onto repayment all at once, where for federal borrowers, that is, uh, where they haven't had to make payments since March of 2020. Um, one, there is a big adjustment for borrowers where now they have to account for this payment in their budgets uh, month to month. Um, and then two, for the servicers, they are having to field a ton of extra forms, questions, calls, et cetera, you name it. They're not always doing the best of jobs also, and there's mistakes made on, on both ends um, from the servicers. Uh, maybe the borrowers aren't filling uh, form out quite properly. Um, and so borrowers should really pay attention, at least at the outset, what is the payment amount due? Um, does that match up with what I expect the payment amount to be? And if it doesn't, um, we need to take we need to take steps to remedy that situation. And Cliff, in just our last half minute or so, what is the big open question for you when it comes to uh, the financial future of the uh, of Generation Z? You know, I really want to get a better handle on how they, you know, kind of see their ability to make headway in the marketplace. That to me is what's most important, right? Do they see a future where housing is realistic? Do they see a future where the cost of raising a family doesn't just feel like too much, right? Because that can just be the case of like, you know, adding a child to a household does add so many expenses and the cost of childcare is up. And so I just want households to feel like they're able to make the choices that will help them be happy. And, and that's always a challenge. And especially when we have markets like this, where it does feel uncertain and costs do feel higher um, than maybe they should be. And that's a challenge. Thanks to both of our guests today, Cliff Robb, Professor of Money, Relationships, and Equality, and the Consumer Science Department Chair at UW-Madison, and Eric Kroll, Certified Financial Planner and owner of Hilltop Financial Advisors in Milwaukee. They were with us today to look at uh, the financial conditions challenging young adults who are trying to build up credit scores, bring down debt, and maybe start saving for retirement, too. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, we'll get the latest on Wisconsin's Supreme Court and redistricting lawsuits, plus a look at volunteers in Wisconsin communities. That and more tomorrow on Central Time. Coming up after the news, an expert in civil military relations talks about what he thinks is behind public confidence in the U.S. military and what could be influencing changes in that confidence now and in the future. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time. I'm Rob Ferris. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. What does it mean to have confidence in an institution? It can mean a lot of different things, but in ongoing Gallup polls over time, one trend is clear. Confidence in many American institutions, Congress for sure, the media, churches, the list goes on, is low and has mostly declined over time. With one major exception, the U.S. military. According to a Gallup poll earlier this summer, 60% of respondents said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the U.S. military. That might sound like a lot. It actually represents a low mark that we hadn't seen since 1997, again, according to Gallup data. So what is it about the U.S. military that gets relatively high marks from the American public? And what does it mean for the military to have that kind of support? Our next guest dug deeper into public opinion to try to answer those questions. 
You can join in at 800-642-1234. How confident are you in the U.S. military? What does confidence in the military mean to you? Has it changed over time? If you are a family member, serve or have served, what's your perspective on public support for and confidence in the U.S. military? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Peter Fever is a professor of political science and public policy at Duke University, where he's the director of the Duke program in American Grand Strategy. His new book is called Thanks for your service, the causes and consequences of public confidence in the U.S. military. Peter, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you for having me. Let's start with these top line numbers. You dig a lot deeper and we'll get into that. But uh, can you talk about what the trends have been over the last few decades when it comes to big picture support for the U.S. military confidence in the military? Well, I thought you summarized it well. Confidence in the military is high but hollow. It's high relative to confidence in other government institutions, and this has been true for decades, but it is hollow in the sense that part of the props undergirding it uh, are eroding, and we've actually seen a decline, as you note, Uh, and some of the props are uh, brittle in the sense that they could crack quickly. And so while it is good news that the confidence in the military remains high despite the decline, there's no basis for complacency. Depending on when people grew up, they might assume that it's always been a high, this confidence of the U.S. military. As you point out in the book, uh, post-Vietnam War, that wasn't necessarily the case. And in a lot of American history, there was skepticism, even suspicion about the idea of had it, having a standing military at all. Can you give us a little of that historical background? Well, of course, the, the Constitution, the framers of the Constitution worried greatly whether they were creating a menace to the Republic by allowing uh, there to be a tiny standing army. The tradition, the American tradition is really to love the citizen soldier, the one who answered the call like the Minutemen of the Revolutionary Era or the draft who answered the draft in World War II, but then go home. Uh, We shower those, that military with benefits, the GI Bill and, and so forth. But the permanent professional military has tended to be viewed with much more skepticism. And of course, much of our, that period was before the advent of modern polling. But it, it, since the Vietnam War, we've polled pretty consistently about public attitudes to the military. And what you see is that the, it gradually cr- climbed during the all-volunteer force era. And then it soared in the wake of the Reagan uh, era and the Reagan military buildup with two very high peaks, one after Desert Storm and one after 9-11. What made you want to look under the hood in these big overall numbers? And I'm skipping forward to some of the later chapters in your book, Peter. Why does it matter why and how we view the U.S. military with or without confidence? Well, there's there's two reasons why. One is a very uh, parochial reason why I wanted to, because in the late 90s, I published an article that said, with a colleague that said, public confidence in the military is brittle. <laughs> it's high but brittle and is about to go down. <laughs> and if you track public confidence from when I published that prediction, which was in September of t- 2001, confidence spiked immediately mm-hmm. after and stayed high for the last 20 years. So I started to into this writing this book because I wanted to find out why I was wrong. And it's ironic that I came to the same finding ending that I I was at, you know, 25 years ago. I think 
we are high but hollow. And what um, propped up public support was the rally to the flag after 9-11. But your question asks, what's the policy implications? Mm -hmm. And uh, it does matter. People with higher confidence in the military are more likely to recommend to others to serve in the military. So high public confidence helps prop up and maintain the all-volunteer force. I, let me be clear. It's not a tier one factor, dry, and this, thus the decline, recent decline in public confidence is not a tier one factor driving the current recruitment crisis. But declining confidence makes an already difficult recruitment job that much harder. So you, we care about it for that. It likewise correlates with things like willing to spend on defense uh, budgets um, and also willingness to use the military. So the this one number is a is sort of a good heuristic snapshot of the public's mood regarding the military and their their support for other things that might involve the military. Talking to Peter Fever about his new book, Thanks for Your Service, The Causes and Consequences of Public Confidence in the U.S. Military. You can join in with your thoughts, your questions, maybe your experiences at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Peter, you worked uh, with survey data to look a lot deeper into this question of uh, what people mean when they say they feel confident in the military. Can you tell us a little bit about how you dug into this and how you tried to deepen uh, what we know from this public opinion information. Well, we used a variety of survey experiments where you uh, prime respondents with information about the military, whether it's positive or negative, and see that effect on their confidence uh, uh, in the military. And what you find when you use those techniques is that the public does move in response to prompts about whether the military is doing a good job or not. So the competence of the military, the profession, the uh, performance, if you will, of the military, is it doing well in the battlefield or not? That does matter. Likewise, if you prompt the military, uh, sorry, prompt respondents with information about military misbehavior, ethical lapses and things like that, that also drives down public confidence. So obviously the professional ethics and the perception that the military holds itself to a high standard and lives up to that high standard, that matters too. Perhaps one of the most interesting findings, though, concerns something that a political scientists call social desirability bias, mm -hmm. where people are giving an answer that they think is the politically correct answer to give. But if you use techniques to, designed to tap into their true attitudes, you, you can do so. And when we use those techniques uh, to find out people's true attitudes about public confidence in the military, we find that public confidence drops by as many as 8 to 27 points. It's, it, it could be a fair bit of hollow confidence where people are just saying they have confidence because that's what they think everybody else is expecting them to say. A big question is, who are people thinking of when they talk about confidence in the military? Are they supporting the troops, the general idea of the enlisted personnel in the military, maybe? Or are they talking about military planners, the Pentagon, the retired generals they see on TV? How did you try to sort out what people meant by the military? It's all of the above. So no matter what you ask them about, whether they have confidence in the military as an institution, confidence in senior military leaders, by name, uh, you know, prominent military leaders, or interestingly, if you say, 
what think about military people you know how does that change your attitude about public your your personal confidence in the military what you find across the board is yes it moves in slight uh, directions people have more confidence in the military in the abstract than in specific um, senior military leaders uh, and some people their confidence in the military goes up when they think about people they know and some it goes down when told to think about people you know that's an interesting um, result there but on average across all of them it it's high so it's not highly sensitive the this metric is not highly sensitive to the what the military uh, sorry what the respondent might be thinking about that does though raise another point which is that and this is a, a a steady finding across all my polling and many other people's polling is the public just doesn't know much about the military. Mm. And this points to one of the um, fast eroding pillars of public confidence. People with personal contact in the military have high, higher confidence and know more about the military than people who don't have personal contact. And of course, demographically, the number of people with personal contact in the military is is dropping and will continue to drop uh, dramatically as the older um, draft era generation passes. We've already mostly seen the passing of world, of the greatest generation, uh, a time when pretty much everybody had a family member who served in the military. And now it's a very tiny percentage, uh, under 20% maybe, of the, of the public that has a personal contact like that uh, in the military. That means what they're learning about the military comes increasingly from media, maybe TV shows, movies, and less reliable sources of information than the kind of personal experience uh, might convey. And that creates the opportunity for lots and lots of myths and confusion and ignorance about the military. And I think that's a growing problem in the, our country. We're talking to Peter Fever, professor of political science and public policy at Duke University. His new, new book is called Thanks for Your Service, The Causes and Consequences of Public Confidence in the U.S. Military. In survey after survey in recent years, the U.S. military gets a lot of confidence from the public, especially compared to other institutions, in particular government institutions. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions for our guest about his research and what do you feel when you think about the U.S. military? Do you have confidence in it? And what does that mean if you've served or loved one is serving or has? Does that change how you think of the military? Do you feel like people without those connections misunderstand what it means to serve in the military? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation with Duke University political science professor Peter Fever, looking at his new book, Thanks for Your Service, The Causes and Consequences of Public Confidence in the U.S. Military. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you uh, share a, a commonly held, though not universal, confidence in the U.S. military yourself? Why or why not? If you serve in the military, what do you think, uh, or have served, what do you think people get wrong about it? What do you wish people knew? 
And what do you think uh, when people say thanks for your service? Glad to hear it. Annoyed to hear it. I've heard uh, both responses. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Peter, you look at a lot of different uh, factors that might drive people's confidence or lack of same in the military. One you look closely at is party and partisan affiliation. A lot of interesting things came out of that in terms of uh, what people of different political backgrounds think and what they think of the partisan makeup of the military. Right. So the the one of the strong findings is that Republicans traditionally have held much higher esteem in the military than Democrats. So while Americans on average hold the military in high esteem, it, for Democrats, it's a, a majority view. For Republicans, traditionally, it's been a super majority view, very, very high. Uh, and it almost becomes an identity issue where Republicans say, if you are a Republican, that means you have confidence in the military. If you have confidence in the military, that's a sign likely that you're a Republican. That changed in the last three years, interestingly. And I think partly changed in response to action by President Trump and other uh, opinion leaders in the Republican Party who started to attack individual members of the military. And then in the last year to attack the military as an institution, accusing it of being, quote unquote, woke. Uh, and as a consequence, Republican confidence in the military has moved down markedly. The decline you mentioned at the top is mostly due to a decline among Republicans who now are more skeptical. And so that's opening up um, the pro uh, an interesting and perhaps problematic period where the military is becoming uh, politicized and becomes a partisan uh, punching bag. And the net result of that could be declining confidence uh, in the military overall. The public, of course, defines politicization as when the military agrees with the other party. So Republicans are not bothered if they see the military agreeing you know, on a policy issue with a Republican majority. But they are bothered if they if they see the military agreeing with the policy position that the Democrats hold and vice versa. And so that means the military is kind of whipsawed. They can't they can't win if they become a, a partisan football. And we're seeing that increasingly uh, in the last several months. We've made now the military combatants in our culture wars. And that's a very pernicious development that's likely over the long term to hurt public confidence in the military. Another concern you have is uh, the public's understanding or maybe lack of understanding of the relationship between civilian control of government and the military and uh, the potential that uh, support for the military might lead people to want to do things that it ought not to do under our system of civil military relations. Can you talk about that a little? Right. The, the, one of the things that the public doesn't know a lot about is civil military relations. There. I think there's a real decline in civic education in the United States. And so people never really learn about what is best practice for civil military relations. And that can lead them to a problem of overconfidence in the military, saying we've got a public policy problem, let's ask the military to handle it. And we've seen that over the last three, four years where the military is rushed out uh, by political leaders as the solution to whatever is the policy problem. We're not, we need to deliver COVID vaccines. Let's ask the military to do it. Things that are far, far from a military mission. Uh, and of course, 
that that may be a consequence of overconfidence, if you will, uh, in in the military. And it also is the case that the public is willing to ask the military, have the military do things that would actually be detrimental to civil civilian control. So siding with the military, if they disagree, say, with the president uh, who happens to be from the opposite party and saying the military would be better off if they disobeyed uh, a an order from, say, a president who comes from the opposite party to mine. That, of course, is anathema to civil civilian control. And perhaps the worst finding was finding the number of people who were said they were willing to contemplate uh, military rule, actual military rule. Now, it's a small number, but uh, it's not zero. And so it should be zero. And there's a uh, non-zero fraction of the public that's willing to contemplate that kind of thing. And that that's that's clearly problematic for civil military relations. Let's bring on a caller. Steve is with us in Stevens Point. Steve, hello. Hi, how are you? Good. What do you want to tell us about, Steve? Well, I'm a former Navy pilot, and I can tell you that uh, confidence in the military certainly took a hit when uh, there was an incident at Tailhook. Um, and I also think that that our country has had a little bit of a hit on confidence in the military after our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Steve, uh, both great points. Uh, thanks for calling in. First of all, Peter, uh, he gets into something you look at in the book. Our perception of professional ethics in the military took a hit, Steve says, with Tailhook, the, the, uh, the, the rape and sexual harassment scandal. Right. He, he, he pointed out two of the main uh, pillars undergirding public confidence. One is professional ethics, that the military is performing responsibly, and Tailhook uh, suggested that they were not, uh, indicated that they were not. And, and you would expect, and, and rightly so, public confidence should drop at when news of such gross misbehavior emerges. The other is more complicated, but it, it refers to the performance of the military in Afghanistan. There was a slight dip, but not a large dip uh, in public confidence in the military uh, after Afghanistan, not as large as you might expect. And the reason is because the public so far does not blame that on the military. Mm -hmm. They blame that on the civilian political leaders, but from the other party. So Republicans blame Democratic political leaders and Democrats blame Republican political leaders. But both Republicans and Democrats say the military did OK, and so did my politicians. They put the pin the blame elsewhere. And so, so far, there hasn't been as much of a reckoning on the Afghanistan case as you might expect. But Overall, when the military performs well, it does increase public confidence. So uh, before Tailhook was Desert Storm, and the Desert Storm performance caused a real spike. Steve, thanks for the call. Peter, I want to take just a couple minutes on a, a conclusion you reached that, that uh, I got to say, I didn't quite see coming. You're all for people having confidence in the military if the military earns that confidence. You uh, see a problem in having so much confidence in the military, but not other civilian institutions, government institutions. And part of your solution to that is to raise the profile and raise the respect for those other kinds of service. Can you talk about that a little? Right. The problem is not high confidence in the military. It's high confidence in the military coupled with low confidence in all other civilian institutions. Um, 
or it would be high confidence in the military that's totally undeserved. <laughs> so I want the military to earn high confidence, but then they will it will function best if the public sees the rest of government working as well. And also if it sees that there are many ways of contributing to the public good. You mentioned the awkwardness of getting thanked for your service in the airport. Many, many military members have told me that that makes them feel awkward. And I encourage them to, rather than feel awkward, uh, engage the person in conversation and say, well, what do you do? And if they say, well, I'm a, just a middle school teacher, thank them for their public service. That's an important contribution. The, the, there's a lot of ways to contribute to the public good and not just by serving in the military or serving as a first responder. Those are important and they deserve the recognition we in society give them, but there's many, many other ways to serve, even to include serving in elected office and serving as a quote unquote bureaucrat in government, that is public service as well. And I think if we can raise our general public confidence in the performance of these other political institutions, that will help um, civil military relations as well. Of course, those other institutions have to earn it as well, and that's the challenge. Peter, thanks as always for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Peter Fever, professor of political science and public policy at Duke University. He's director there in the program in American Grand Strategy. His new book is called Thanks for Your Service, The Causes and Consequences of Public Confidence in the U.S. Military. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time on the Ideas Network.